In a world where mental health problems are used as common tropes in various forms of storytelling, therapist Ryan Engelstad and executive producer Mike Graham try to determine what lines up with real life and what is just exaggerated fantasy. Listen as we delve into the fantastical tales told about mental health in books, movies, and television. This is Pop Psych 101. Welcome back to Pop Psych 101. I am licensed therapist Ryan Engelstad here as always with my co-host Mike Graham, but much more excited. Sorry, oh Mike. Oh my God. He's skipping me. I'm just skipping you over because uh, we're really excited today <laughs> to have Christine, nurse practitioner and host of the Antidotes Stories and Medicine podcast joining us. Welcome, Christine. Welcome, Christine. Hi, guys. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. I've actually been really excited about having you on today. You are our very first third party. Since we do things differently than some other podcasts and we don't have an interview style thing, Christine gets to come on and just take part of the fun. This is really fun for me because I usually talk to people about like really horrific events and it's really cool to just talk about a movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we've said before, it's like the research is not tough here. Yeah, this was easy homework. Good. Well, and that's one of the reasons we wanted to have you on, too, is to sort of diversify the voices that we are sharing, the perspectives, you know, our tagline being one therapist, one patient, not my patient, but someone who's dealing with mental health issues. Disclaimer. Of course, <laughs> I, I make sure to clarify every time, but really excited to have someone with even a, a third perspective, both as it's wonderful to have a woman on the show who can offer that perspective, but also the nurse practitioner we were talking before we started recording about some of your experiences. So we're, we're happy to have you and that perspective on the show today. Thank you. And thank you for having me. So, Christine, I was I was wondering if you maybe could hear up top, talk a little bit about what you do, your job, because it's super interesting. And then maybe a little bit about Antidote Stories in Medicine, your podcast, which is also incredibly interesting. So the podcast kind of came out of what I I do. So my my background is in emergency medicine, working in EMS and I was an army medic. So we would deal with a lot of emergencies, obviously, but a lot of them were mental health emergencies. and then. I transitioned to being a nurse and then a nurse practitioner. And I started my career as a nurse practitioner working in outpatient addiction medicine with a specialty in opioid addiction medicine. So when they changed the laws in 2017 to allow nurse practitioners and physician's assistants to prescribe buprenorphine, which is Suboxone for opioid addiction, I was one of the first ones to kind of sign up for it and get wavered by the DEA. So I've done a lot of substance abuse or substance use disorder treatment. And then now I work in primary care and we do a lot of mental health in primary care. Wow. That's intense. And like I said, before we started, thank you, because there's just not enough people in healthcare in general, let alone mental health care. Both places need as many people that have the hearts to do that, to do that. So thank you from me, who is happy to have people to take care of him. Yeah, of course. And I guess I want to just say, while I have this platform, Anyone that's listening that has a concern about their mental health, if you do not know where to go, if you do not know if your condition or your concern is that significant, you know, a lot of people love to post suicide hotline numbers on Facebook, but that that doesn't apply to most people, thankfully. But there are a lot of people that are just like, I, I don't feel okay. Go to your primary care provider, your primary care right. provider. It is fine to cry in my office. So many people, I have so many tissues. It's perfectly fine. I can start you on medication if you need it. I can give you the resources you need. 
We can get you to therapists like Ryan. I can get you to psychiatrists or psychologists, whomever you need to help you. We're your, your resource for that. Yes. And I would love to thank you as well and echo that sentiment because as you mentioned, that's a lot of times how people end up in therapies because they've seen their doctor and they mention, oh yeah, you know, I've just been feeling really anxious recently. And all of a sudden there's a conversation about what people can do dealing with what might seem like a minor issue, whether it be medical symptoms or more specifically mental health symptoms, being able to have that conversation and introduce the possibility of treatment is really important. So thank you, Christine, for all the work that you do. Speaking of treatment, Ryan, what are we doing today? What is our subject? What are we talking about? Today, we are talking about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, a cinema classic. That's right. Yeah, yeah. this one is actually a National Film Registry to be preserved film. And it's old. And that, I think that came across when I rewatched it. It was really shocking in some ways, the way some things were, uh, were portrayed. <laughs> but we're going to get into all that. Okay. Okay. So are you guys ready to go? Yeah, let's do it. Let's go. Yes, sir. Cheswick, mm. you're voluntary. Mm-hmm. Scanlon, Billy, for Christ's sakes, you must be committed, right? No, 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 no. You're just a young kid. What are you doing here? You got to be out in the convertible while bird dogging chicks and banging beaver. What are you doing here, for Christ's sake? It's so funny about that. Well, Jesus, I mean, you guys do nothing but complain about how you can't stand it in this place here, and then you haven't got the guts just to walk out. I mean, what do you think you are, for Christ's sake? Crazy or something? Mm-hmm. Well, you're not. <laughs> you're not. You're no crazier than the average asshole out walking around on the streets, and that's it. Jesus Christ, I can't even believe it. All right, we're doing One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest today. This is a film directed by Milos Forman and based on the book of the same name by Ken Kesey. Kesey claimed to have never actually seen the movie, but he did say he disliked what he had heard of it, seeing as the book's main protagonist is not the same person as portrayed in the film as the main protagonist. The film stars Jack Nicholson as R.P. McMurphy, Louise Fletcher as Nurse Ratched, Will Sampson as his friend and patient chief. And that is actually the main character from the book. There is a whole other cast of characters, including a young Danny DeVito and Christopher Lloyd. Set in 1963, R.P. McMurphy is transferred to a mental institution from a work farm prison where he served time for the statutory rape of a 15-year-old girl. It is ambiguous as to whether or not McMurphy is claiming to be mentally ill or the prison has made this recommendation for the transfer. The ambiguity of his mental illness remains, I think, throughout the film. As we go through, we meet several different characters with varying degrees of mental illness. McMurphy and the other patients are kept in a prison-like ward of a hospital that is ran under strict rule by Nurse Ratched. McMurphy seems to genuinely enjoy his counterparts in the hospital, going as far as to teach them basketball and even escalating to the stealing of a bus and taking them on a fishing trip. During one of their frequent group therapy sessions, the group gets out of control, resulting in a few of them going under electroshock therapy. I'm sure Ryan has a better way to say that. Later in the aftermath of a secret Christmas party put on by McMurphy, He physically confronts Nurse Ratched and attempts to strangle her to death. He's then taken, quote, upstairs, a place the other patients seem to fear. 
And later, his friend Chief finds him in bed completely out of it with a lobotomy scar on his forehead. The Chief is terribly upset and takes pity on McMurphy and decides to smother him with a pillow just before escaping the institution the way he and McMurphy had planned. A lot to unpack here, but today we are not only talking mental health diagnosis, but also the state of mental health institutions, treatment, and care as portrayed by the film from the 60s through to the state of affairs in today's world. Thank you for that that excellent summary, Mike. And I was very thorough this time, Ryan. Very, very thorough, very on point, covering all the spoiler alerts that we would need to give up front. Yes, there's the whole movie. <laughs> there's the whole movie. <laughs> Christine, I don't know about you and in, in terms of your experiences in, in these types of settings, but we talked last week when we talked about the beautiful, A Beautiful Mind and its portrayal of sort of inpatient psychiatric units, that it's really jarring to see how things were kind of set up during this period, uh, 40s, 50s, and 60s, and the way that we presume, some people know, some people may not know what those places might look like today. There definitely are locked psych units that still exist. There's a lot of them. They are definitely much more comfortable looking, but I was reading some stuff on the movie and the setting that it was based off of a VA hospital that the original author had visited. And when I worked in EMS, we would do a lot of mental health transfers. So we would take patients that were involuntarily committed or voluntarily committed, but you know they need to be observed from either emergency departments to an inpatient psych hospital or whatever. So I've seen a lot of these. And there are older buildings that still exist with this kind of look about them, especially VA hospitals. You know, I hadn't seen this one. The whole thing blew me away. I couldn't believe just how like prison like this felt. It's like, why would he want to transfer from a prison to a prison? Gates everywhere, white walls. And it seemed, you know, dirty, dingy and just kind of a cold, scary place. So I'm at least happy that you said it, it, things seem to be more comfortable in these lockdown situations. Yeah, for the most part, the the inpatient units that I have seen, they try and be very colorful. You know, if there's patients that have done artwork, they have that on the walls. There's motivational sayings in certain places. And of course, it depends on the patient population that they're treating. If this is an adolescent unit, there's going to be a lot more things that pertain to that group as opposed to an older veteran population. You know, they're not going to have pop culture things on the wall. You mean they're not going to have Pop Psych 101 stickers on the bathroom stalls? They they may have movie <laughs> posters. They probably will. <laughs> and a lot of American flags. <laughs> but it's, it's going to be a lot more decorations. But those the cages in front of those like barracks beds, there's soldiers' homes, which are like a, a type of barracks dormitory style hospital. Those still exist. They I know of some in Massachusetts that exist like that. Yeah. And, and on the podcast last week, I was talking about how I, one of the first jobs I had at a college was at a former state psychiatric unit. So you could still see that the way it was set up was very much like the place that we see here in the cuckoo's nest. Really? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's scary. It's really interesting to me right now, just hearing both of you. You know, we've all been in these places for completely different reasons you two there to help people. And I was forced to go there. <laughs> uh, not forced, but you know, I did go along willingly. But I will say to your point, Christine, I've been into two inpatient twice. And both times I, I did find it, you know, obviously very hospital and, and clean and things like that, you know, cold in that way. 
But as far as the vibe you get from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, yeah, that wasn't there at all. It was definitely way more catered to we're here to help you. Yeah, and I think, and I don't know if I'm jumping ahead on this, but I think- Oh, there is none of that. (laughs) Just jump around. So I watched this movie initially like when I was in high school, because of course it's like this classic that you have to watch and they talk about the mistreatment of mental illness and stuff. And it was taught by an English teacher that did not have a- any kind of psychiatric training or anything. Mm -hmm. So it was always very much this, you know, mistreatment of mental health and everything. And now having obviously been through so much clinical experience and education in mental health and working with mental health, I have a very different view of it. And so having watched the movie now, it seems more like we are viewing this entire environment, this entire interaction with staff and patients from Mr. McMurphy's perspective. So it seems very much like a prison because that is how he is viewing it. Yeah. I am going to reckon that if we were watching this movie from the perspective of someone else, like maybe Billy or some of those patients that were there voluntarily, we would see more of a comforting and encapsulating environment that was supportive of their needs. Right. Because in the movie, it does go through to explain, and it's actually one of the pivotal moments in the movie as far as the ramping up of these treatments that are put on to the patients that McMurphy is there because he's he has to be. Uh, he can't leave until the hospital says, but most of the patients are there voluntarily. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a dynamic that, you know, having worked in that institution that I mentioned before, which was specifically a long term inpatient substance abuse facility, you see this difference between people who are there because they want to be and people who are there because they have to be. Yes, yes, yes. So that was that was that was one of the most interesting dynamics for me is watching McMurphy come into this this scenario and learning that some of the patients around him were there on purpose and they could, they could leave any time. And that often, I know for me in the setting that I worked in created a really interesting, sometimes even combative dynamic. So that's the the milieu, I guess, is the, the right. right word for yep. this interact. Oh, what what does that mean? So milieu is, the, <laughs> I and I'm saying it kind of with this very strange kind of accent because I had this psych nurse practitioner professor in grad school who was this very Bronx but very artsy lady. She was very cool, but she, I don't know. <laughs> I'm channeling her when I say it. <laughs> Giant glasses kind of look like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and. <laughs> <laughs> So the milieu is this therapeutic environment that it encompasses the ward, the patients, the staff, including the psych nurses, the, I hate to say orderlies, but that's what they were there in the movie, but also the aides that you would have and the psychiatrist. So everyone is supposed to be healing each other and you're supposed to be learning from each other's struggles and then also helping each other grow and kind of, it's supposed to be an overwhelmingly therapeutic environment. When you have this dichotomy of people that want to be there to get themselves better and then people that are also forced to be there Hmm. and then these mixtures of diagnoses that some are more manipulative than others and some are more self-serving than others. Right. That might not even work well together. Yeah. Some some people have more motivations that are not as altruistic as others or more predatory, I guess you could say. So, Ryan... My first big question is coming out at just hearing your guys' initial thoughts on the state of today's institutions, or not even institutions, just today's care facilities. As you first see this movie, and you're looking at the way it is portrayed with, with the gates and the barbed wire and the chains and the people being locked down in their beds, 
what does that look like in the 60s? Is, is this how people were treated in the 60s with mental illness or is this blown up for the movie? No, sadly, and, and obviously not having been alive then, but from what I have learned and even talked to people who have experienced going back that far, this is pretty close to accurate. I thought so. And, and even coming to today, as I mentioned in the, the environment that I worked in, we certainly had people coming in in chains and handcuffs just the way that McMurphy came into the institution uh, the way he did from jail. So that part is, is right. still, unfortunately, the way a lot of times people are treated and transferred. Well, as Christine said, when she pointed out that this is from McMurphy's point of view, yeah. from a person working there's point of view, some of these people could legitimately be dangerous to you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So so this is necessary sometimes. Yeah. And I will have I will say when I was working in EMS, there were times that I had patients that were restrained for transport, sometimes very acutely. If we pulled them off the street to bring them into an emergency room, they were in handcuffs by the police. But we would have them in soft restraints. Uh, We call them four point restraints because we're going down the highway at 60 or 70 miles an hour. I'm the only female in the back of the ambulance. Yep. I have been assaulted multiple times, but I've also had people try and jump out of ambulances while we're driving and we're trying to get them to the best and most appropriate care that they need. So it is this very difficult line that you walk when you are restraining someone that is having a psychiatric crisis. What's that like, even as a bystander or someone that's trying to help, you know, especially when you know they have a mental, they have something going on that maybe they can't even control. What's that like to have to deal with something that that could possibly cause you harm, but knowing that you have to help this person. It's it's really difficult. And that's why there's a lot of burnout. And you can even see this. There's a really small scene when McMurphy goes into the nurse's station. He startles that other younger nurse. He just comes up on her and she freaks out. And Nurse Ratchet is like mama nurse. And she swoops in there and she goes, Mr. McMurphy, you need to leave the nurse's station. And we think she's kind of being... A nurse ratchet, right? <laughs> no, no. I have oh my gosh. Nurse ratchet. Bless nurse ratchet. I'm gonna I'm gonna play the defensive nurse ratchet here because I'm sure my patients, especially if I've restrained you as a mental health patient, because I'm fearing for my safety or my my partner's safety, they've called me nurse ratchet, I'm sure. And so you can see that she's she's defending her other nurse for the safety of, of the nurses, for the safety of the patient, so that they don't have to go and then get restrained if the situation escalates. It can be very difficult and very dangerous working with people that are not always aware of what the appropriate behaviors are. So, guys, I think we we talked a little bit about the mental, the state of the mental institution in that there's a lot of accuracies as far as the way they portrayed it in the movie as to what it would have been like in the 60s uh, from when the decade that it's in. I just want to mention, oh, yeah, as yeah. much as we kind of vilify what was happening in the 60s as far as kind of lockdowns and there's that scene where the patient like was asleep restrained and there's like a bucket beside their bed like in the opening scene and that's like so terrible that I can't fathom it but there was such a greater access to inpatient care that was government funded at that time that we don't have as many inpatient beds now yeah we we actually talked about that last week because now it's the treatment is provided by essentially the prison system yes yeah, yeah yeah that's a worse care much worse. So I just wanted to bring up that little point. Like, no, no, I, I'm happy you there's did. There's much less care. Uh, because we don't want to over vilify something if it's not accurate. The whole point of the show is to 
show the accuracies and and point them out when they're wrong. And if someone's here to point out when I'm wrong, because, you know, I'm just a bystander. Mm -hmm. But but we kind of went over how these places are portrayed. And I should say there are a lot of accuracies, but Mm -hmm. there there are some things to take away as far as things that had to happen for certain reasons that maybe you're not aware of when showing in a movie. But Christine, you were just talking about Nurse Ratchet, and I want to kind of switch it over (laughs) here to Ryan, because I think this is a huge part of the movie. I think we have huge opinions on Nurse Ratchet, and I think that she also kind of goes in line with the portrayal of the actual treatment facility. So, Ryan, uh, Nurse Ratchet, what do you think? Okay, so yeah, so so Nurse Ratchet is the sort of head nurse, presumably the head psychiatric nurse at this facility. She wields a lot of power, and we we talked also during our discussion about a beautiful mind how the the psychiatrist or the head nurse in this case. They are the authority figure. They say when you're allowed to leave. They say when you have to go get electroconvulsive shock therapy, all these sorts of things. So they, they wield a lot of power. You guys were talking before about Nurse Ratchet and how from maybe McMurphy's perspective, she's presented as kind of the villain, this person that's controlling, preventing him from, from being able to get out. But Christine, I'm assuming you're going to agree with me here. <laughs> I actually think that Nurse Ratchet is far from the villain of this movie. You're, yes. I'm with you. I completely agree. <laughs> totally with you. I was like, oh, poor Nurse Ratchet the whole time. That's what I thought. Yeah. I didn't even know there was a saying Nurse Ratchet. I had no idea. This is the first time I've seen the movie. It's not a saying around my family at all, but I was like commiserating with her a little bit, even though I'm not a nurse. Now, does she wield her power in an authoritative way, especially when it comes to sort of minor things like, can we watch the World Series tonight? Yeah, sure. But as I was mentioning before, I worked in a a therapeutic community, which the sort of dynamic is very similar. The job of the staff is to keep order. And a lot of times that is done by having a very specifically set schedule. And whether it's uh, patient's behavior or medication issues, there are a whole lot of reasons why something uh, like a privilege like watching television might not be granted. So for me, that's like one of the worst earlier examples. You know, she's presented as being this sort of like crazy authority figure. I'm like, yeah, you know, I didn't even realize that that's how they were presenting her, to be honest, because when she she explains herself. Yeah, she says exactly what you just said. There's people who have schedules here that we have to keep. She's just trying to run a floor. And so I was like, okay, cool. And then when I'm, you know, doing further research and everyone hates this lady and I'm like, okay, I don't know what movie I saw. Yeah, she she is very good at what she does. She establishes boundaries. She's very clear in her communication. She's very direct, which are all of the things that you need to do as a psych nurse. She's leading this milieu. She knows she has these multiple different patients with multiple different needs, and she's an established order. And so McMurphy comes in. He is allegedly faking a mental health diagnosis, and she sees right through him. She actually sees that he's faking. To be crazy, quote unquote. Right. He's here to disrupt things. But she sees that he is pretend like he thinks he's faking to be crazy, but she sees that he actually has a mental health disorder. Oh, so I'm watching this going, oh, I, I'm seeing some traits here and I don't want to jump ahead because I think Ryan has a little <laughs> bit of a diagnosis because I came up with a diagnosis. And I think she goes, okay, I know who you are. And so now she is treating him therapeutically as you would treat someone with this diagnosis, which is very clear boundaries and trying to help him therapeutically. And he is not liking this. Wow. Wow. You're blowing my mind right now. And I got an inkling. Uh, It's kind of why in my synopsis, I, I didn't 
come out and say he doesn't have a mental issue because frankly, I wasn't sure. I actually wrote down in my notes, is the place driving him crazy or does he have a problem? And wow. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I think we all saw the same movie. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, and I'd love to get into real quick, just a quick discussion of McMurphy, because I think one of the things that shocked me right off the bat from how his character is introduced is in the interview he has with the psychiatrist right before he's fully admitted. They kind of they kind of just gloss over the fact that he committed statutory rape. Yes, totally. (laughs) And and I even wrote down intake session takes four minutes. I mean, that's an hour and a half at a regular psychiatrist. Now, yeah. And and even the the sort of conceit that they'll be, quote unquote, evaluating you over a period of several weeks. You know, some of that might be true, but they're going to be a much more thorough evaluation before you're admitted to a unit like the one McMurphy yes. is. Yes, yes, yes. Do we want to go down that yeah, route right yeah, now? Yeah, sure. We wanna... Well, I was going to say, so we we have the statutory rape. We acknowledge at least, I think we said five assaults over the period of several years. So we have this sort of pattern of behavior, and then we see his behavior on the unit. And for me, despite McMurphy's charming nature, quote unquote. Right. Yeah. He reaches, he even reaches, seemingly is reaching out to some of these guys to teach or even take care of them, it seems. But it's all with a goal. It is a goal with establishing his own ends. So he's, he's doing it to manipulate authority and to ingratiate the other patients towards him so that he can assert power. Wow. That with the kind of hypersexualized behavior that you're seeing with the girls that he's bringing in, the risk taking mm-hmm. behavior with the, the parties, the prior aggressive behaviors. Yeah, I think that is evidence of a, you know, a mental health condition before he came into the unit. I don't think the unit created one in him. No, not at all. Yeah. So Ryan, I think you being so since you're the therapist here, what are we what are we looking at with McMurphy? Do you think that he has an actual mental health issue, just like Christine said, and he doesn't think he does, but he really does? And if so, uh, what is it? Yeah. So for me, always a disclaimer, we haven't evaluated this person. This is right. based purely on, you know, what's shown in the movie. For me, he shows many signs and symptoms of antisocial personality disorder. That's exactly what I was going to say, too. Wow. Blown, uh, you guys are blowing my mind today. I just, I'm just like, I have no idea. We have a consensus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so antisocial personality disorder, yep. maybe for a second for uh, people like me that have absolutely no idea what that one is. What, uh, what are the signs and symptoms? How do people, obviously, we can see how McMurphy's acting, um, but how do you see that in the real world? Christine touched on some of it, which is obviously he has this sort of initial charming personality. But often these other signs of irritability, Christine talked about sort of wanting to take authority, sort of bending people to his will, to his goal. But it's also this lack of remorse. So we hear about the assaults. Even when he talks about the statutory rape, he brushes it off. So there's no remorse for really anything he does over the course of this movie. He breaks glass. He breaks into the the nurse's station on multiple occasions, scares people, puts people in harm's way. And and yet the movie is is putting him in the light of of the hero of the situation. That's right. And that's one of the reasons I have a problem with this movie. Well, I think the movie is doing that because I think my theory is that the movie is doing this. He is gaming us, the viewer, as he is gaming the other patients on the unit. Oh, wow. And so we are supposed to be getting tricked. And I had a conversation with my boyfriend about this as we're watching it because he didn't obviously see this either. So I'm sitting there watching Nurse Ratchet B.L. Stern and I'm going, oh, she knows what he is. He has, you know, antisocial personality disorder, possibly. 
I was saying this to my boyfriend who has nothing to do with the medical career, medical field at all. And he's like, what are you talking about? I go, you're being fooled by McMurphy, just like everyone else is. And I think there's kind of this subtle genius of the movie that you're getting sucked into this personality disorder. But also a very common thing with certain personality disorders is that they're not aware that they have this. With depression, of course, people know that they don't feel good. With personality disorders, they often don't recognize those traits in themselves unless they've had therapy. They think that's just the way things are and are supposed to be. I guess I couldn't speak. Ryan could speak more to that than I could. But right, okay. there is much less insight when it comes to those cluster B personality disorders than there is with other mental health conditions. So I think we're supposed to be kept in the dark. I think the movie's made that way. And then you see that Nurse Ratchet, if you're someone that kind of has a little bit of knowledge of this, is recognizing it. And you see this when they have the meeting with the psych, after like the boat incident, the psychiatrist, the whole team. And everyone kind of thinks it's cruel that Nurse Ratchet says, no, no, don't send him back. I think we could help him. They think she's being vindictive and like out to get him. But she's being a good psych nurse. She's advocating for her patient. She knows that he has this. And she's hoping that through therapeutic interaction that maybe he can gain a little insight into his behaviors and why he is kind of being a menace to society, I think. Yeah, I guess I can, for me, I, I hope that Christine is right. I hope that that's <laughs> what the director intended. It, it, it- and and we're not just looking at it through rose colored glasses. Well, yeah, because I'm 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 picturing, you know, the the way that mental health was perceived at this time was Jack Nicholson just this sort of charismatic actor like, "Oh, you know, what a great guy to play like a hero in a mental health facility." Wow. Heavy stuff today. So, uh, we're going to take a quick break and I'm going to tell you about a really cool podcast. I hope you guys can check out and then we'll be right back. Podcast popularity is currently at an all-time high, and thousands of new podcasts are premiering every single day. There are so many great shows about incredibly obscure but fascinating topics, and they can be hard to find. Dean Giles and Dan Roberts host one of those shows. Join them weekly on Podskewer, a podcast about obscure podcasts and the people who run them, available on iTunes, Spotify, and many other popular podcasting apps. Just search for Podskewer. And now back to Pop Psych 101. All right, and we're back. Okay, so up top, we talked a lot about the state of mental treatment facilities, uh, both from the past and, and how they were presented in the movie and the way that things actually are and the way they look today. We did get into Nurse Ratched and the actual diagnosis and from what we all have agreed on that McMurphy actually did have a mental illness and could use the treatment that they were trying to give him. But I do think that there was a lot going on with Nurse Ratched. Ryan, I know you have big opinions and Christine, you as well. So I figured maybe we could just talk a little bit more, more about the nurse. For me, similarly to Christine, just kind of related to her a lot, especially the sort of quaint way that she ran group. Obviously, group therapy has come a long way since the 60s. Right. And you know, I thought when they, she <laughs> yeah. was when she was doing that, I thought like again, I was right there with you guys. Like I was like I I liked her so much and I was like, look at all this responsibility they're piling on her. She has to run therapy, she's got to run the floor, so you know, her her therapy, her group therapy, quote unquote, is very sort of open-ended, just kind of like free form, whoever wants to talk about whatever, let's talk. I would say that's one specific difference that you might see in a psychiatric unit today. The groups are going to be a little bit more structured just in the way the treatment would be. But even so, she kind of works to get everybody involved. And that being a group therapist, as I have been in the past, 
is something I could really relate to. Like, yeah, especially the people that don't want to be there or are there involuntarily, you know, they don't care if they're getting therapy or not, I would say for the most part. So it's them who are like, oh, Mr. McMurphy, do you want to share today? And they just kind of shake their head. No. Billy, do you want to share today? You know, just kind of shake the head. No. So it, it was tough to, to get treatment if you weren't really invested in getting it. And I would say it still is, you know, if for people who are involuntary, if you're not looking to make a change or looking to learn about yourself, you're not going to get results from the treatment provided. Okay. And I did have a question here and whoever has an answer. Um, like I said, uh, I was a big champion of Nurse Ratched mostly, but there was some things that stuck out to me. And these could be directorial decisions or this could be directly from the book in the way they wanted her portrayed. But the one thing she did in the whole movie that really made me uncomfortable was when she was pressuring Billy to talk about his suicide attempt in front of an entire group. And it was clear he was very uncomfortable, but she kept pushing the case to the point where one of the patients chimed in and said, why do you have to keep pressuring or why do you have to keep pushing this? First thing I'm thinking, I'm watching this scene, she's talking to Billy. He's got a really bad stutter. So you don't know what's wrong with him or what's happening in his head. And, but you know that something has happened to him or, or something. And he clearly doesn't want to talk about it. And she's asking him about why he proposed to someone. And then she flat out says, why did you try to kill yourself? And it was very uncomfortable for me uh, as somebody who has gone through a lot of suicidal thoughts in my own life and have to deal with that that to be called out in front of a whole group would really just would really put me in the same place as Billy. I, I, I don't know. Have you, have you seen something like that before? What did you think of that? I've, so I've sat in on group therapy when I've been doing rotations on inpatient psych. And usually now they are certainly not as confrontational as that, thankfully. But we, I also have to say when it comes to Billy, there's a lot of really awkward moments between Billy and nurse ratchet. And we don't, really know their history. So when you're developing kind of this therapeutic relationship with a certain patient, you know who can be pushed a little bit more and who cannot be pushed, even though they're uncomfortable. So I'm not going to say that that interaction was great, but I'm going to say that we don't know enough about their history or what's going on with Billy to say that maybe there was not a reason behind it, I guess. No, that that makes sense. I guess I was mostly... It was mostly about the in front of other people thing that was really getting me. Ryan, did you have any different thoughts? Did you agree with that at all? Yeah. So to echo Christine's point, there's probably a lot that we're not seeing, whether that's Billy talking about his suicidal attempt to the psychiatrist or Nurse Ratchet knows a lot about his background anyway. This is probably not the first time it's been brought up in group. This isn't just like a random like, right. hey, you haven't talked in a while. I'm going to ask you about this thing. Now, the other thing I mentioned before, which I could go into more detail, people are curious, the sort of therapeutic community model, which was born out of these psychiatric facilities back in the 60s, 70s and 80s, which is that it was much more confrontational, especially when it came to substance abuse, but certainly in regards to psychiatric institutions as well. Now, was it, was it taught that way? Oh, yeah. Therapeutic communities were, were sort of designed in this confrontational way that people were suffering from these afflictions due to weakness of character and things like that. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I will say, luckily we've come a long way from, from even therapeutic communities, but yeah, there'd be people getting called out in group, people being sort of humiliated in various fashions. Oh yeah. These things happened. I mean, that pisses me off to even yeah, hear about. Sure. Yep. To that extent, there's, there's a lot of things that we probably did not see between nurse ratchet and Billy. 
And that's not even to say some of the other patients as well. Wow. Yeah. So, so one of the reasons I was excited to have you, Christine, on the show with us today is that it's nice just to have a non-male perspective. Because <laughs> I know for me, you know, watching this movie, re-watching it recently, especially with everything from Me Too to all these sort of other contexts that are going on, to see women portrayed in the movie the way they were. Now, granted, this isn't all male unit, so it's not like we just purposely excluded females from the movie altogether. But as a result of that, women were portrayed in very specific roles in relation to these patients and people. So I I was curious in terms of your perspective as you were watching this, maybe what your thoughts were. Yeah, so the women are either very bossy and domineering, as Nurse Ratchet is, or the nurses that are taking them to therapy, or they are victims. They're victims of the characters of men. They're or the manipulation of McMurphy. Yeah, they're more promiscuous. They're not well spoken. They're dressed kind of scantily, or they're just very meek, like the other nurses. Or there's your very assertive, vilified a little bit uh, Nurse Ratchet. They're very polarizing views of women in this movie now. Is that kind of reflective of the time? I don't know. But I think there's actually a very positive view of Nurse Ratchet and nurses and women in the fact that when they're talking about McMurphy's case after the boat stealing incident when he broke out, the the psychiatrists and and all the administrators, they look at her and say, well, what do you think? What do you think we should do with him? And she says, I would like to keep him here. And she weighs in and her opinion is heard. And that's true. Nurses are part of the treatment team. So the the doctors in that situation, like the the guys that are in charge of the facilities, basically at this point, are looking to her and saying, yes, we need your help here and we respect your opinion, like just like each other's. Well, they understand that she spends the most time with him. And this is always the case that the nurses spend more time with the patients. They have insights that we as providers, me as a nurse practitioner now and physicians don't get because we're seeing so many other patients. We just see small snapshots. We see the chart, but the nurses that spend day to day with patients, they have these great insights. They know patients way more intimately to have them as part of your treatment team, this multidisciplinary team, it's really valuable. And so we're seeing that this is a real accurate representation of how nurses work, how these healthcare teams work. And so that's not usually what you get in the media. Usually you get this subservient nurse going, yes, doctor. Yes, doctor. Yeah. Let, let me run this IV for you. Yeah. Oh, you want me to wear like a scantily clad nurse's outfit and push some meds? <laughs> like, great. Yeah. But we're not getting that. She's she's making decisions. So it's good. That In that regard, it's good. I was impressed by that. And, and perhaps that's just us being in the field, being able to appreciate the hard work that we know Nurse Ratchet is, is both doing and being appreciated for by sort of the unseen people, whether that's the other, the rest of the medical team. It was a unique experience for me to see this person who is sort of vilified. And even in the broader culture, when you say Nurse Ratchet, it's, oh, the bad person from that movie that Jack Nicholson's in. Yeah. It's like, no, wait, hold on. Yeah. That's not the whole story. I think it's I think it's a good sign that all three of us in this day and age watched this and didn't take away what people took from it in the 60s and 70s when this movie was wildly popular at that time because we watched it and I just didn't get the same vibe people got from back then but Ryan I did have a question about that scene you were you were talking about I had written this down and it struck me as odd when I watched the movie as far as accuracies and thing and I just was really wondering there was the scene 
McMurphy has been transferred over to the mental facility and the head psychiatrist there just isn't sure what's going on with him. But if he doesn't diagnose him, then he has to go back to jail and he gets out in 68 days. So he has a group of other doctors and maybe they all work there. I don't know. It doesn't really say, I don't think, but is that, is that true to life? Is that something that, that a group of doctors would actually do sit down and talk about a diagnosis and see if multiple of them agreed on this? Yeah. And, and Christine could probably speak to this as well. It's very similar to just standard rounds and the inpatient units I've worked at. This is like a daily, if not weekly, more, a more broad meeting, like the one they probably showed. Yeah. And whoever, whatever doctors are available, everyone's going to be reviewing the chart, reviewing notes, reviewing, you know, medication adherence, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's going to be a group decision. And from that perspective, I thought that was actually pretty well addressed. Yeah. Cause you're going to do rounds, especially for inpatient psych, because your psychiatrist is going to be prescribing. The psychologist would be doing the therapy. The psychiatric nurses are going to be doing the day-to-day interactions with group therapies and everything. So there's a, there may be like a nutritionist when I did inpatient uh, eating disorders. So there's a lot of different clinicians with different specialties that weigh in on how they feel the patient is progressing, where they need more support. If the nutritionist says, oh, they're, they don't have an appetite. You know, the psychiatrist may say, hey, we need to increase their Remeron because that's going to help with their appetite or something. So they work together. Yeah. And actually, I just want to follow up on that point, because that's one of the things that one of the problems I had with uh, with the movie was the medication. So uh, all the patients are going up, you know, getting their sort of daily meds and they don't tell them what it is. Yeah. That's exactly right. So McMurphy gets in line and he, and he wants to know what it is. And the, the nurse, I think, just says, oh, it's medication. It's good for you. You know, not what is it for? What's it going to do? What are the side effects? Yeah, yeah. That's what you say about a vitamin. Yeah, yeah. Even still, you don't give a vitamin unless you tell them what it is. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So so we've come a long, long way from that. Now, now, now thinking about accuracy portrayal, remember, it's set in the 60s. Is, is that accurate for the 60s? Or the, the the 50s or the 70s as opposed to the today. That is probably very accurate for the time. So as far as the patients getting care or treatment, it does go through the movie. And as I guess you could say, McMurphy character starts a kind of escalating. A uh, big scene happens, very pivotal moment in the movie where the, the group therapy session just explodes. One character wants a pack of cigarettes and won't stop screaming about it. And basically, it's just it's just chaos in this room and people are losing control. And Jack Nicholson's, or excuse me, McMurphy's way of dealing with this is he just punches through the glass and grabs the cigarettes, basically telling Nurse Ratchet that she's not allowed to basically put stipulations or any sort of things on these guys. And so the three main perpetrators of this thing that really stood in and, and made this even worse than it already was, being Chief, uh, and he's going to come up here in just a minute as a big part of the ending. So Chief uh, McMurphy, and then I don't remember the other character's name, but he was the guy that wanted cigarettes. And they all go, and they go through a round uh, each of uh, electrotherapy. And we talked a little bit, Ryan, about this on the A Beautiful Mind episode. I, I think that this is an opportunity for us to talk about the difference between years past with electrotherapy and and what's going on now. And Christine, I think that you had some pretty good insight on what's going on there. Yeah. So electroconvulsive therapy is still used. It is unfortunately used as a punitive treatment or punitive measure in this movie. And it is, that is so inaccurate. It is a very, very, very effective, safe, 
treatment for things like treatment-resistant depression, severe bipolar, schizophrenia. For it, it can really, really help people. Patients are sedated, just like you would have a colonoscopy. You know, they're not harmed when they're doing this. And I have had patients who have said to me, I want to go have ECT. It has been really helpful. Um, unfortunately, we sometimes medications are not working for people and electroconvulsive therapy can really change their life. And the thing is, when you have someone that's acutely suicidal, we've tried all these medications, electroconvulsive therapy can work very, very quickly to get them out of this horrible depression that's, you know, kind of, it's ruining their life and it, it's very dangerous for them acutely. So I hate how it's portrayed in this movie because it just creates so much more stigma that we don't need. I was going to ask you, so is that in reference to what you've seen today or do either of you know if maybe it was different in, in more, I suppose, violent or as you, I mean, it's displayed very violently in this movie as it was in A Beautiful Mind, uh, whether it was more this way uh, back in the day as, as opposed to what we're seeing today. Similar to the way just the environment is presented in general, you know, it's much more, it's, it's cleaner. It's much more relaxing. I mean, it, the sort of vision that you get from this movie and others about, um, you know, ECT and what it actually looks like today. I mean, compared to that, ECT today looks like a spa treatment. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So it, it, there is a big shift on, on actually how it's, is it just how it's performed like completely in general or is it accurate when uh, Jack Nicholson, they put the thing in his mouth so he doesn't bite his tongue. And then they, they quickly, they put two things on his temples that they have a charge on and it's just a quick charge and it sends him into a bunch of convulsions. Would that be what actually happened either now or then uh, as far as the actual way the, the electricity is doing to the body, I guess. <laughs> so my understanding of this and correct me if I'm wrong, Ryan, is that you do need to induce a seizure to have it be effective. Oh, wow. But but the big, big thing here is that ECT is a voluntary treatment. People are not being forced into this like they are in the movie. But it increases, increases a vast number of neurotransmitters in your brain. Endogenous opioids, it increases serotonin and dopamine very, very quickly. Wow. With all of that neuromuscular activity that goes along with seizure activity. And you're not feeling the seizure activity because they have presedated you and with a, very, a variety of medications. Huh. I mean, this stuff's just blowing my mind because uh, like I said last time, the, the my psychologist recommended ECT for me and, and we've been talking about that. You know, as a, as a person that potentially would go through this uh, because medications aren't very beneficial to me and I've been on, I mean, just about everything. And it is a scary thing because of the way it's portrayed in movies you see Jack Nicholson or or Russell Crowe from The Beautiful Mind shaking and and drooling and and the way they drag Jack so it it does scare you and it's very relieving to hear both of you talk about how it just isn't as bad as they show it yeah yeah it's 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 funny because as i'm watching it it was that bad back then from everything we know yeah so so that part is hard to watch but so it's lucky i was born in 83 <laughs> Yeah, I mean, essentially, you know, thank, thank goodness we've come a long way, right? No, really. And just in general, and the fact that we can have this conversation now and and point out the fact that Nurse Ratched is not quite a Nurse Ratched. So I'm really happy about that. But I, I do think the one thing that was the scariest thing in the entire movie is is the climax towards the end 
they're having a Christmas party and it's a secret Christmas party that they're doing after the nurse goes home. And obviously they're not supposed to be doing this. She shows back up and they, she's got a huge mess and drunken passed out patients laying around. And obviously she's upset either way. There's a big confrontation that happens. And, and as you guys have said, Jack Nicholson has issues that he needs treated and he jumps nurse ratchet out of pure anger and tackles her to the ground and is and he basically not even basically he tries to kill her he strangles her and he's attempting to murder this woman he's knocked out by an orderly but what we don't see is he's taken to uh, a place and they just call it the upstairs they don't show what happens but you come to find out that they've given him a lobotomy and you see that at the end of the movie and, and i'll just run through real quick and that's why the chief is important the chief sees this and the end of the movie basically takes pity on this newly lobotomized McMurphy who is, is seemingly no longer himself anymore. And he says, you know, I can't let you live this way. And he kills him by smothering him and then the chief escapes. But the important thing here is lobotomies. I, um, I think the scariest thing the portrayed in the media that I've seen as far as mental health is lobotomies. I do know a little bit about the fact that they were regularly performed on people just like on kids and everything and ryan uh was yeah lobotomies what do you think well it's it's terrifying right the fact that uh against your will a doctor or surgeon would just go in and just you know i'm just gonna cut some of your brain out Ugh. no big deal right it was, it was explained to me that they just scoop it or they just uh swirl it around a little bit i mean it might have been a little bit more precise than that but but yeah i mean there, there was very little science behind desired results. I mean, you see Jack Nicholson comes back and he's the zombie. From the scars, we can deduce that they've taken some of his prefrontal cortex out. You know, It's which like, are... what? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, so, Christine, do you know why? Why is this a thing? Is it a yeah. thing anymore? How no. did it start? <laughs> or why would anyone ever do this? So this was a thing for... About 20 years, it was pretty popular. I think it was like the 50s, early 60s, and it was mostly performed on women. I mean, this is the same thing as putting leeches on your eyes and stuff. I think this is worse. Um, <laughs> <laughs> leeches come off. You don't regrow your frontal cortex. So the frontal cortex is the part of our brain where we get most of our personality. We get a lot of our manners, our social cues. That's how we know how to interact with the world. So the idea that if we are altering this, we can make you more able to integrate with society. That's where this came from. It is a very erroneous thought, but that's what it was. And I think it comes from that whole Phineas Gage thing, the guy that got the railroad tire through his frontal cortex and his personality changed. If you could explain uh, for anyone who doesn't know, like, like we've said frontal cortex and we've kind of alluded to, but can you say how a lobotomy happens, like what, what it is and, and where they go through and, all, and what they take out and everything. From my understanding of it, and this is a very limited one, they basically drill holes into sides of your forehead and they sever certain connections in the frontal lobe. So basically the, under your forehead. Oh my God. I, I don't know that they are scooping out parts of it, but I think they are severing oh, certain- Don't use the word scooping. You, you used <laughs> Well, if, if you guys want to hear something, because I, I looked it up as we were talking, about 50,000 people received lobotomies in the United States, most of them between 1949 and 1952. So it's a very limited period of time, in which case they were, in which they were popular. Most were transorbital, 
lobotomies, I should say about uh, 10,000. Is that the one that goes through your eyeball? Uh, that's my understanding. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah, skip me, skip me. <laughs> and uh, the rest were mostly prefrontal lobotomies, like the ones shown for Mr. McMurphy. But my, my favorite line of this is a specific doctor performed about 3,500 during his career, of which 2,500 were his ice pick procedure. That's that's the one through the eye. And this is the one I, I can't remember who was even telling me. Was it you, Ryan, telling me about lobotomies? I don't remember. But they were saying they would just go through the eye. And the way they explained it to me was and then he just kind of swirled that soup around a little bit. And then the and then the person would ever and they would do it for anything. ADD like, oh, you got ADD. Here's a little brain swirl for you. Yeah. So it's it's pretty wild. Um but, you know, so how, how did we, we stop learned this? we learned pretty quickly. I mean, it, it was stopped just for the reasons that we're, we're freaking out. There was no consistent benefit or, or, or even consistent change documented. If anything, it was just this sort of like uh, random result, you know, uh, everything from, you know, emotional variability to behavior variability, personality loss. So, I mean, if you can't document the efficacy of a treatment, it's going to die out. Good. <laughs> We are running out of time. I really think we covered a lot of the questions people might have. I do want to note that I'm just so happy lobotomies aren't a thing anymore. <laughs> but we do need to get to our ratings. For those who have not listened before, we do a rating system. Normally, Ryan rates on a one uh, out of five on how accurate the movie or book or television show is as far as to real life, the accuracy to real life. And then I'll rate it just on uh, whether it was a good movie or not because I don't know anything. Uh, but today... I was really hoping, Christine, if you'd be willing, I, I'd like to have both Ryan and Christine rate this on accuracy separately. Sure. <laughs> well, Christine, you are the guest. I will cede the first rating to you. All right. All right. And Christine, you got to have you got to have it uh, once. So we don't just do a star rating. You got to give it a, a thing. One out of five somethings. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll do stethoscopes because uh, that's the tool of my trade. All right. Uh, so I'm going to give it. You know, I'm going to give it like a four out of five for stethoscopes because it's for the most part, it's pretty accurate and it's pretty accurate for the time. There are some inaccuracies, but I'm not sure if those are intentional or not. But yeah, it's it's pretty good. OK, Ryan, my favorite thing to do every week now is to mentally just think where Ryan's going to go and see if <laughs> I can get it. And I think I know what you're going to do. I'm going to write it down on the paper right here and go for it. All right, so I'm going to go out of five cuckoos just because that's a fun <laughs> word that we don't get to use very often. That I couldn't spell until Ryan like specifically sent me. He said, this is how you spell cuckoos, Mike. <laughs> so out of five cuckoos, I actually am on the same page as Christine. I went four. I knew I knew it. You, you, well, congratulations, Mike, on, on learning my evaluation system after how many episodes are we on now? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so so I went a four because, as Christine said, for the time, this is unfortunately pretty accurate. The things that I, I think found the most unrealistic, if you were watching this for an educational purpose, and, and McMurphy sort of makes the point of why he can get away with the behavior he can get away with, because they'll just call him crazy. Even if that's true, if you steal a school bus and go on a fishing trip with what, what, seven, eight other mental uh, uh, institution residents, you're not going to be allowed to stay there. <laughs> yeah. uh, either they're going to transfer you to a different place or a different unit or send you to jail. So it was a very nice story of, oh, this guy can just kind of create hijinks around the mental health ward and it'll be funny and he'll be the hero. And 
But yeah, no, you're not you're not getting to go back to the nice, cushy mental health institution um, after behavior like that. Awesome. Okay, I'm I'm really glad you guys are both on the same page as far as the accuracy rating. It's relieving to know that it was accurate for the time because it also means that it's it's no longer that way. So as for me, I always do stars, one out of five stars. Now we got to take into consideration that this, like I said earlier, is officially a a movie that's going to be preserved for always. And it's also Congress in, I believe, 1993 uh, named this a historically significant film. I think it probably brought a lot of things to light in a time when people weren't looking at it at all. And, and there was actually many authors and, and you know big name people I read about that did comment on the fact uh, from what I was reading that this was their first introduction to mental health in general. So I think that's a huge thing. But I'm going to give it a five. This movie was awesome. (laughs) Man, it was awesome. I love this movie. I was like, how did I not see this movie before? Uh, It was a really good movie and the ending blew me away. And I don't think I'd watch it again, to be honest with you, because it was uh, sort of a frightening movie for me. But I thought it was great. So that is a five out of five for me. This has been a blast. Thank you so much, Christine, for coming on the show today. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, I hope maybe coming up in the future, if you have time or whatever, we can do it again. And and uh, you are our first guest, and I'm so happy we have it. But everyone, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we got to get out of here today. I do want to thank Kevin McLeod uh, from Incompetech.com for providing our music, Killers and Perspectives, which I use in most of our episodes. If you're looking for royalty-free music, uh, he's a great place to visit. And do not forget to check out Antidote's Stories in Medicine podcast. Christine, where are you available on? All your major podcast listening sites. All the major podcast (laughs) listening sites. Podbean, iTunes, Spotify. She's going to be up there ready to listen to. Just go give her a search. Leave her a rating. Leave her a review. Her podcast is fantastic. Um, But anyway, Ryan, as always, thank you so much for uh, allowing me to sit down and talk with you every week. Thank you, Mike. It was a blast today. Thank you, Christine. Okay, so I think that was sort of a surprising conversation about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, as we all sort of felt bad for Nurse Ratchet and identified some major concerns about Mr. McMurphy. This leads to one major point to me, though, and that is we often have preconceived notions about what therapists, psychiatrists, and doctors are trying to do when they help us. These misconceptions can often get in the way of people seeking treatment or being open when they do much as they did with R.P. McMurphy. The truth is that therapists, doctors, and psychiatrists, almost without exception, want to help you get better. If you are truly uncomfortable or don't feel like there is a good fit with your treatment provider, by all means, seek a second approach or opinion. But keep in mind that a little discomfort at first is normal when delving into sensitive thoughts and feelings. Also, remember that it is your treatment and you are entitled to ask questions about the treatment methods and approaches being used. Finally, Even though psychiatric hospitalization has come a long way since the time of Nurse Ratchet, the prospect of you or a loved one being away and in treatment can be a really scary prospect. It's important to keep in mind that the treatment team's main goal is to help their patients get stable and discharged as efficiently as possible. Any resistance or disruptive behavior is only going to delay the process. So please don't be like R.P. McMurphy. It might have been funny at times in the movie, but as we saw, his actions had very serious consequences to himself and those around him. Thank you so much for listening to our show. 
Thank you to our guest, Christine, from Antidotes, Stories, and Medicine podcast for joining us today. Thank you, as always, to my co-host and executive producer, Mike Graham. If you like the show, please check out our social media pages. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at PopPsych101. We also love hearing from our listeners, so if you want to give feedback or suggest something for us to cover, you can email us at poppsych101 at gmail.com or join our Facebook group. We are on all major podcast distribution channels, so please subscribe, rate, and review our show. We would greatly appreciate it. For Mike Graham, I'm Ryan Engelstad. Thanks for listening to Pop Psych 101.